Good morning, Providence. I'm Denny Abuel, one of the elders here. And uh, I hope that despite the circumstances of this Christmas season, that the, the life of Christ, the gift of Christ, has brought you much hope, joy, and peace. I'm so thankful for you this morning, for his providence and presence in this church's life and ministry. It's been a wonderful, challenging, refining sort of a year. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how the Lord's going to use us in the year ahead. As we gather this morning, I just have a couple of announcements um, to bring to your attention. The first announcement is that there's still time to give to the Christmas initiative and to year-end giving uh, through the 31st. You guys have been so generous and we're really crushing it with the Christmas initiative, so thank you very much this morning. Also wanted to make mention that Joe is giving us a workshop, an overview of the Bible, um, January 10th through the 31st, Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. So please register for that when, when the email comes out. Also this morning, I want to let you know that nursery through pre-K child care will begin on uh, January 3rd. That's next Sunday. K through fifth grade uh, child care will start January 10th. Both of those are during the 930 service. And finally, this morning, I want to mention that uh, our sermon series to start the new year will be a very timely one on Philippians. So we really look forward to that. We look forward to being gathered uh, here in person at 8 o'clock, online and in person at 9.30, and also gathered here at 11 a.m. starting January 3rd. So with that being said, I'd like to turn your attention to the Lord Jesus Christ as we worship him and Brother Ian calls us to worship. Church, good morning. Let's uh, seek the Lord in prayer together as we begin our time. Father, we do thank you that in your faithfulness, your truth continues to go out. Father, we thank you that um, you have um, brought countless souls to yourself through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that your work continues, that you will accomplish all of your purposes, that you will draw all who you've elected to yourself for your kingdom, for your glory that we'd all bow the knee at the sun. So Lord, help us in our time of worship here as we gather in our living rooms or wherever we are to watch um, the service. I pray, Lord, that um, you administer deeply to us, affect us, help us to change into Christ's likeness, Lord, where sin is made known to us. Help us to repent quickly and to come to you, the fountain of living waters. We praise you, Lord, and we sing of your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound That saved a rich like me I once was lost, but now I'm found Was blind, but now I see It was grace that taught my heart to fear And grace my fears really 
How precious is that grace of The hour I first believed Where believed The Lord has promised good to me is worth my hopes secures you will my shield and portion be as long as life Through many dangers, toils, and snakes, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me on. Ten thousand years, right shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. God's praise than when we first begun by your hand. Well, church. There is a 4th century creed that is alive and well today that recites the truth of the God that we know, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so let us recite together this just glorious creed called the Nicene Creed. Would you read it with me? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven 
and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And so we lift high the name. Lift high the name of Jesus, of Jesus, our King. Make known the power of His grace, the beauty of His peace. Remember how His mercy reached, and we cried out to Him. He lifted us to solid ground, to freedom from our sin. Oh, sin, my soul, and tell all He's done, till the earth and heavens are filled with His glory. Lift high the name of Jesus, of Jesus, our Lord. His power in us is greater than, is greater than this world. To share the reason for our hope, to serve with love and grace. And that all who see him shine through us might bring the Father praise. Oh, sing my soul and tell all he's done till the earth and heavens are filled with his glory. Lift high the name of Jesus, of Jesus our life. No other name on earth can save, can raise a soul to life. He opens up our eyes to see the harvest he has grown. We labor in his fields of grace as he leads sinners on. Oh, sing, sing my soul and tell all Easter till the earth and heavens are filled with his glory. Oh, sing, oh, sing, sing my soul and tell all Till the earth and heavens are filled with His glory. 
pray with me this morning? Lord, your steadfast love never ceases. Your mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Our souls say that the Lord is our portion. Therefore, we will hope in you. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for making that true. By speaking those words through an author so many centuries ago, How great is your faithfulness. Lord, we praise you for your faithfulness that our soul can say that you are our portion. For giving us a hope and a peace and a joy that we can seldom express. Father, we confess that so often we, we do just go our own way we acknowledge you with our lips, but our actions take us exactly where we want to go. We confess, Lord, that so often we're, we're judging those around us rather than seeking what's best for them. We confess, Lord, that we're creatures of our own comfort. We want things like we want them. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us. Lord, your mercies are new every morning. We pray for your forgiveness. We pray that you would truly give us hearts of repentance each and every day, that we would constantly be turning back to you, crucifying the flesh and instead enjoying life in Christ. Father, we're so grateful. We're so grateful that as we turn the, year, uh, turn the page on this year and look forward expectantly to, to what is to come, that you are with us, that you are our rock, you are our fortress. This morning, Lord, as we study your word, I pray that you would change our hearts, that you would challenge us and equip us, inspire us, to be more faithful. Lord, we know that uh, our faith, though small, can do, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us for your glory and your will. And so, I, Lord, I just pray that you, you would use today, this last Sunday of 2020, that we would glorify and magnify you this morning, that your word would go forth and do its bidding. Lord, we pray that you bless Austin as he preaches this morning, give him rest this week. Help him and his family to relax and enjoy some time together. Thank you for your faithfulness to this church again. And we uh, just commit ourselves to you this morning. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Good morning, church family and friends. If you would, please join me. I'm going to be reading two scriptures. Um, the first will be John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. Then I'll be reading in Romans 10, verses 13 through 17. I'll be reading from the ESV. 
And if you're able, if you're um, at home, if you could please stand out of reverence to God's word. So I'll begin in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He, found his own, he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are the Simon, the son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you on the, under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 17. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. You may be seated. Well, as I thought about what to uh, speak about the very last Sunday of the year, I thought it would be good to go out with a challenge, and that is to think carefully about evangelism. You know, different religions have different means of, uh, of allowing their religion to go forth. So some, you know, would think in terms of, say, 
territorial expansion. Uh, others would think more about marrying people in your clan or with your religion and having a lot of children, and that's how it advances. But it's been very clear from the beginning with being a Christ follower that we're to advance our faith through the faithful proclamation of what Christ has done in our lives. You can think about in Mark chapter 1 and verse 17 that you have that line that Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. Or how about at the end of Matthew's gospel, right? We're to go, that wonderful imperative, to go to all the nations, making disciples and baptizing people. Or in Acts 1.8, right? To go into all the world, uh, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. To, to be a Christian is to tell others about your faith in Jesus. You know, there's a man named David Bebbington who's... Um, done uh, some work on what it means to be what we call an evangelical and what we mean by an evangelical, someone who really believes the Bible. And uh, Bebbington developed something called the quadrilateral, which is four four positions that he says is something that if you believe uh, in the Bible and you're that kind of Christian, then these four things are non-negotiables. And one of those is actively sharing your faith that I hope that we see from throughout the New Testament that the way that we're to advance the name of Jesus is, is by telling others about him. And that was in that reading there from Romans, isn't it? Say, so how in the world are people going to know about Jesus unless they hear about him? And who's going to tell others about Jesus if it's not his church, if it's not those of us who really believe him, that there's a charge on our lives to tell others about him. And I think that this is, uh, again, you say, well, after this hard year, is this really what we should be talking about? I think it's a wonderful time to have this on the mind. I've never had so many questions about why God's allowing this to happen or people uh, feeling a degree of emptiness. Say it's a wonderful time for us to think more carefully about what it means to share the good news of Jesus and to realize that if we don't do it, no one will. And this passage in John, I think, uh, will help us tease out a number of points as to how we might do this effectively. And so the first point I'd like to make is sometimes when people think about evangelism, uh, telling others about Jesus, they think in terms of, of maybe a crusade. That you remember the great uh, images of Billy Graham where there'd be, you know, down at the old municipal stadium and he'd have uh, tens of thousands of people and he'd be preaching and doing the altar calls. And some of us, we say, well, evangelism is something done at large crusades. Or, you know, others, you might think about uh, Bible tracts, if you remember those, those little pieces of paper that maybe you would hand out uh, as you walk down the street or you leave them uh, in a restaurant or something. Is, is that what evangelism is? Or, you know, the, maybe worse yet, a street preacher um, that we sometimes go down and we're walking around public square and there's somebody standing up on a box and he's, you know, preaching about, uh, you know, all those who are going to go to hell if they, um, you know, or whatever it would be. I mean, is it about cru a crusade? Is it about uh, Bible tracts? Is it about street preaching? And what we want to say is, no, I don't think those means, while maybe they had a time uh, in history where they were effective, I think now we have to think uh, about a different way of doing this. In John chapter 1, the first point I'd like uh, us to see is that evangelism is best accomplished through relational networks. Now, let's face it, say very few people, you hear a random street preacher or you're going to read a Bible tract, say very few people, I think, are, are genuinely converted by, by, in, the, in those means. But rather, we are often hear stories of those converted through personal relationships. 
You know, there's a very interesting exercise you can run. It doesn't matter where in the world you are if you're with Christians, and you can ask them. You say, if you're with 20 Christians in a room, to so have them raise their hand if they were converted at a crusade, maybe one hand goes up. Um, or if you say some in maybe a, a, we, we could call it a sign or a wonder or a dream, you say sometimes people are converted uh, by that means, and uh, one or two hands will go up. But then if you kind of build it up and say, well, how many of you came to Christ through the, the invitation that is the, the, the mentorship of a close personal friend or a family member. And almost every hand goes up. See, a lot of us, it's from our upbringing, it's because of what our parents taught us, what our siblings would teach us, or a member of our family came to Christ. See, a lot of times now, it seems that God uses relational networks uh, to, um, to bring people to know him. And look at John chapter 1 that we read this morning. Look at how there's a relational network that the good news of Jesus travels through. So firstly, there are disciples clustered around John the Baptist. And if you remember John the Baptist, he's the forerunner of Jesus. So he's already been saying in John chapter 1, behold the Lamb of God. So John, if you will, has kind of primed the pump. That, that he's brought his disciples along quite a, a bit of the way, right? That he's already been preaching Jesus, and it's uh, through that network that then they are able to, to go over to Jesus himself. And I think that that's also important because you see it's a collaborative effort. You know, a lot of us who say, well, is it just, a, you, you know, you have one knockdown argument, you say, and then you lead a person to Christ. They oftentimes, there's a collaborative network, and a lot, it takes people to move incrementally in order to follow Jesus. I remember Abdu Murray, uh, he was a Muslim and now is a Christian and is a traveling preacher, but Abdu would say to come out of, uh, out of Islam and to become a Christian took him nine years that he moved incrementally, he studied, some people nudged him this way, right? It wasn't just one person with one argument, but rather he was moving along a path through his different relationships. And that's a little bit what we have here, that the disciples clustered around John, they knew a little bit that John had been pointing to Jesus, but then they're handed off and they really encounter Jesus. You see, it's a relational network. They were already known. Moreover, you say one of those disciples, did you catch that, his name's Andrew, what does Andrew do when he encounters Jesus? What's the first thing he does? He says he tells his brother. And his brother, of course, would become one of the most famous figures in all history, Simon Peter. So Andrew immediately, upon encountering Christ, goes to his brother, someone he knew well. Let's keep going in the passage. You see Philip, is a nice little gloss on Philip's name. We're told Philip, down in verse 44, Philip is from Bethsaida, the same city as Andrew and Peter. So that means Andrew, Peter, and Philip grew up in the same little town and then both went to Capernaum together. If you read Mark chapter 1, say it's very likely that they knew each other, that this is through relational networks that they're telling each other about Jesus. Then what does Philip do? Well, Philip goes and finds his buddy Nathaniel and tells his buddy about Jesus. You know, you find this over and over again. Have a read of Mark chapter 2 and verse 13. This is Levi's uh, conversion where Jesus says, follow me, or Matthew the tax collector. And what does Levi do? But he throws a big party with all of his tax collector buddies so that they can meet Jesus. The, the point is this, is that now we think about, say, oh, I don't know if, if crusades, they're not going to work as well as they used to. I, I'm not that comfortable with Bible tracts. I, I don't think about signs and wonders. Uh, how in the world do we advance the name of Jesus? Well, I think it's through relationships networks sometimes the 
phrase friendship evangelism is used, but I think there's a lot of truth in that. See, in this way, our evangelism is not, it's not a program. It's not a strategy to grow the church. What we might say is it's a lifestyle of pointing people to Jesus. You know, I think about what the good news of Jesus is. It's a faithful proclamation of exciting good news. That's really what we're talking about. And we get really caught up on this, uh, you know, thinking that other people will be frustrated with us or they won't like us. Uh, but in all actuality, if we think about the meaning of the word, say, why would I hold back from sharing good news with those in my close network? These would be colleagues or family members or those I'm around with a lot. You know, just as Philip went and told his friends, so I can go tell my friend good news. You know, it's not been hard for me at all. You take, for example, of announcing the good news of the Christmas initiative this year, that we've exceeded expectations. You say, I love telling people that. I love announcing it to you. I love telling everybody. So you know what our church was able to do uh, this Christmas? We, we've been able to raise money for all these different ministries. In other words, I had no bit of anxiety at all about announcing that good news. And uh, how much more so with the good news of Jesus, that God sent forth his son so that we would be rescued from our sins and made right with him, that it's a faithful proclamation. So you think about this, you say, well, what are you doing every day? You're with non-Christian workers or you uh, have you know, a, a book club or whatever it would be. The people you see regularly, your family members who aren't believers, so you, you do your job with excellence, you behave with kindness and integrity, and through those networks, faithfully proclaim the good news of what Jesus has done. You know, this kind of personal witness, there's a line there in the notes that I like a lot. It says, one living sermon is worth a hundred explanations. Say, that's exactly right. That how I live out my faith among those who know me best or who see me the most, say, that's going to be the most powerful tool and then I can go to Jesus just as John the Baptist and others did here to come and see, to look unto Jesus that evangelism is best accomplished through our relational networks, doing our jobs with excellence, being kind, and when the opportunity comes, that is uh, the chance to tell others about him. You know, sometimes people wonder, you know, and I've shared this before up here, but you, you you know, in First Peter three fifteen, always be prepared to give an answer for the those who ask for the uh, a reason for the hope that you have. And a lot of us think, well, I'm just waiting around for my non-Christian friends to ask me why Jesus died on the cross. And you say, well, they're probably not going to ask in in that way. But rather, what they might say is, you know, this has been a very difficult year, and I'm feeling quite depressed. Now, any Christian, you say, well, that there should be a, a great light going off in your head, right? Say so they're not asking directly a theological question, but it's, it's crying out for help. You say, do you have any good news for that person? You say, yes, we do. To say, I know it's been a hard year too, but my faith in Jesus has really helped me. Or how about that colleague that says, you know, my teenager has really been causing us a great deal of problems at home. We're, we're, we're out of answers they say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm a parent too. And there have been challenging times, but my faith in Christ has really helped me navigate that. And so all you're doing there is through your relationships, listening to normal life concerns, and then proclaiming the good news of what Jesus has done and how it's made a difference in your life. That's evangelism through relational networks and just uh, being involved with other people. 
You know, as I thought about this, there's maybe by way of analogy, there's uh, a group in the late um, the late 18th, early 19th century called uh, the Clapham sect. Maybe you've heard of this. Uh, you know, William Wilberforce was a member of the Clapham sect, and we sang Amazing Grace this morning, and of course, Newton and uh, Wilberforce were in, that, in, in the same network themselves, but the Clapham sect was a group of evangelicals that began to meet regularly, a small group, to advance Christian causes and gave a lot of attention, of course, to ending slavery, uh, but they, they got together, they'd invite other people in, and it became a very uh, important and powerful way of advancing Christian causes. And I wonder if we can start thinking of our small groups and the subsets of the church almost as little Clapham sects. So we don't always think of our small groups as evangelistic tools, but what, what wonderful evangelistic tools they would be. So you could imagine there are five couples meeting uh, and you, uh, you're the host and one of your neighbors you know, is maybe asking some questions. You say, why don't you come into our small group sometime and see, we talk about the Bible and we have fellowship. You say, that could be a wonderful means of advancing the name of Jesus by using your relational network. So what do we learn from John the Baptist's disciples, from Andrew and Simon Peter and Philip and Nathaniels that they knew each other and they were most excited to tell uh, those folks about Jesus. Can we do that as well? Now, point number two, and, and I, I always hear this objection, is this, I can't tell anybody about Jesus because I just don't have confidence in my biblical literacy. Well, say, so yeah, we want to be biblically literate, but I, I think there's a key point here, is that evangelism, evangelism requires a changed heart, not a technical theological education. So a lot of us think, well, I haven't been to seminary, so how in the world am I going to tell others about Jesus because then that person's going to ask me a technical question and I'm going to be exposed and that's a lousy place to be that I just don't have the training to tell others about Jesus. Say, friends, I just want to tell you, if if you've been converted and you've been rescued from your sins and you, you delight in what Christ has done in your life, say, that's the most important thing of all. Say, I'm going to flip over to Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. You don't have to flip there, but listen to this. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. (laughs) So that's quite a lot in that verse. That all the learned people say it was because Peter and John were so passionate. They were so passionate about Jesus that they spoke with conviction and boldness because he had changed their life, not because they had technical theological educations. You know, Jesus' own teaching style was informal. You can compare that to other rabbis. It's clear that other rabbis were way more educated than he was, so he himself was very informal. And you think about Christ, right? If ever there's an example of someone who can change the world without any of the credentials we would expect, it's him. He was born in obscurity, probably in poverty. He would have grown up with rumors of him being illegitimate. He had no degrees. He never wrote a book. He didn't even have a family of his own. Say, any, anything that we would associate with, with being accomplished or having any kind of credentials, you say, Christ had none of those. Say, what did he have? Well, he had a mission. And so it is with these early disciples, that it's not about a technical theological education, but what it's about is being changed by Jesus and being passionate about what he can do uh, in, in a human life. 
you know, I al- I'll also take this a step further, is that I actually think sometimes technical theological degrees can be a detriment because they can feed on our pride. They say all of a sudden you start dissecting the Bible and learning about the historical development and all the people that, that uh, you know, tore it apart. You say, we, I've known many a person who's gone off, they've been quite a keen Christian, and then they go off to study the Bible and they, they start to swell with pride and stand in judgment over the Bible. Say, I hope that's not a barrier for you today. Say, yeah, we want to know our Bibles well. We want to be able to say some things about our faith. We'll get that to that next but it doesn't require a seminary degree. You know, the history of the church is full of examples of, of God using unlikely people to do extraordinary things. One such figure that I always come back to, is, as you mentioned in your notes, is a man by the name of E.J.H. Nash, whom uh, those around him knew him as Bash. And Bash, while being well-educated, was also a very eccentric person. Uh, he slept a ton. He had a very uh, picky diet. He was an eccentric soul for sure. But what Bash did is in the early 20th century, early to mid 20th century, he started to go uh, run Christian camps at all the elite British schools. So he thought, you know, all these boys off at the elite British schools, they're going to come, they're going to grow up to be real leaders in our country. And he got in, and he was able to do these Christian camps, sometimes called bash camps. And in a nice little book, if you can find it, A Study in Spiritual Power, you'll see how many of these figures came to Christ through bash. So a man you might know, John R.W. Stott, would be one such uh, example of someone who was converted by bash. And it, would, it wouldn't be a stretch to be saying 20th century British evangelicalism really survived it, it was it, it, because of bash he was that influential of a person so an eccentric guy but used mightily by god to raise up a whole generation of evangelical christians and say that's the kind of thing we're driving at here that bash loved the students he loved the lord jesus pointed as many as he could to the to to them and that uh, was the way forward. So what does this uh, passage have us think about so far? Evangelism is best accomplished through our relational networks. That evangelism requires a changed heart, not a technical theological education. Thirdly, evangelism demands that we do think carefully about the times. You notice there's a, a rather interesting objection that Nathaniel raises. Have a look at verse 46. So here comes Philip, right? We have found uh, him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. But then Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You see, there's something blocking uh, Nathanael's ability to get to Jesus. He has a, a problem with with Nazareth, which, which evidently in a place that didn't have a great reputation, and even when Jesus is there, they reject him, so maybe it was with good reason, but there's something in his worldview that's preventing him to come to Jesus, and it has to do, in this case, with not um, believing the Messiah could come from Nazareth. Now, you think about that, and you say, well, what are the views in people's mind? What are, what's the equivalent of the 21st century uh, thinker 
that prevents them from coming to Jesus. Now, I know that it would be very odd indeed if anybody said, well, I just can't believe in Jesus because it says he comes from Nazareth and we can't have the Messiah from Nazareth. Obviously, that this is a time, uh, a, a, a specific objection linked to Nathaniel's worldview and his time. But you think, what are the objections people have without even thinking about it? And of course here you say it's not that they try to answer every question. It's not that Philip tries to dismantle Nathaniel's objection, but he wants to press through. What's he trying to do? He's trying to get Nathaniel to come and see Jesus, right? Come and see. Come and see. Come and look after. Think about Jesus. It's not that he answers the objection, but he's got to get through to him to look at Jesus beyond his objections. And I raise this point because I, I do think it's helpful for us to think about the times and the common objections people have, which often are not uh, objections that are, are that well thought through. It's just things that they're repeating. And once you get into this, you'll find there are really only about uh, maybe six to eight questions that you'll get over and over and over again. So I have a few of them written down. So how about this? Well, I can't become a Christian because Christians are homophobic. So we all know that Christians don't like those who are same-sex attracted. So how might we respond to something like that? Say so we might say something like, well, do you believe in any sexual boundaries at all? And I think that you know, most people would say, well, yes, I do believe in sexual boundaries. I don't think pedophilia is uh, right, and I don't think adultery is right. And so there you go. You say there's a way to build the bridge. Or you could say, you know what, I've been going to church a very long time. This is what, something I would say. say. I've been going to church my whole life, and I can't remember one thundering sermon against those who are same-sex attracted. And in fact, we teach that those uh, folks should be loved as others should be loved, but we do believe in sexual boundaries. So something like that, say that's the equivalent now to, well, what good can come out of Nazareth? Well, that's the equivalent now. Is why would I become a Christian when they're homophobic? Do we have any answers for that kind of question? Or how about another objection? Do I have to choose between science and faith? Say, a couple months ago, we went through that study of origins, and we say we don't have to choose. The, the choice isn't between science and faith, as some would have us believe. It's rather between God and blind chance. We say, actually, uh, the whole enterprise of science emerged uh, because of theism, that the universe was, uh, could be understood, that it was set up with the design. So those kinds of, or you could point to say, well, actually, there are a lot of scientists who have a, a robust faith. So you get the idea. These are common objections to the faith that we should have a couple of answers to. Or the, probably, again, uh, another serious objection, but how can a good, all-powerful God allow suffering? Say, a response to that might be, well, is suffering a problem if you're a naturalist? In other words, does the fact that it is a problem show you that you have an idea of what life ought to be? And anytime you smuggle in that ought, I think you're getting outside of the realm of naturalism. Aren't all religions the same? And you could say, well, no. I mean, the Islamic God is not triune and and uh, the Christian God is triune, and Hinduism, there are 330 million gods, and we say there's one God, and you say, well, all these can't possibly be true. They violate the law of non-contradiction. Well, one of them has to be true. Well, don't you know that the Bible was randomly assembled by power-hungry politicians? You say, well, actually, when you study how the books of the Bible 
were assembled can become a very strong factor in your faith, that they're recognized, they're not randomly selected, or you could ask them, which books do you think should be out and which do you think should be in? The point I'm driving at here is that evangelism does require some engagement with the culture, not to the point where we have to answer all the questions any more than all of Nathaniel's questions were, were answered, but rather, is there a way that we can break down those barriers just enough so that they can do what? Come and see Jesus. Look at Jesus. That's what we want to do. You know, don't get hung up on those questions because there are very good answers and ways that we can uh, make inroads there. So evangelism demands that we think carefully about the times that we try to nudge people forward, not so much answering all their questions, but allow them to see Christ through this. And then lastly here this morning, is that evangelism is ultimately the work of God. It's a work of God's spirit. You know, and it's hard to sort this out. There's a very good book, and I put a bibliography on your, on your notes this week. Um, I challenge you to read some of this this year, but there's a, a very good little book by J.I. Packer called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And you're thinking, well, so if it's, uh, you know, here I am and I'm going to, you know, tell, tell all the others about Jesus and, and it's a work of God, how do those two things work together? Well, Packer's a master. And he says, look, you, you as a Christian say your job is to faithfully proclaim, but God ultimately draws the person. So the, the pressure's not on you. Is evangelism hard work? Yes, it is hard work in the sense that I want to be thoughtful and that I want to be faithful. But ultimately, it's, uh, it's God's work to change the heart, that the pressure's not on us. You know, when I was young and I studied apologetics, I mean, I remember thinking, uh, you know, this way, that, oh, you know, if I just have one good knockdown argument, you know, that this is, uh, I could just have a quick conversation with everybody and that they're uh, immediately going to become a Christian. And you say, well, that's not, that's not how it works. That, um, you really just entrust the work to God that you faithfully preach and when we do this then we can see the power and I think that's what's going on at the end uh, of our passage with Nathaniel that Jesus in a kind of mysterious way is able to see um, Nathaniel before he's there physically do you see that so he knows who Nathaniel is before ever meeting him and say, well, what's going on here? I think that the real point of the passage is that Nathaniel encounters Christ. Then he encounter, encounters his power. Because immediately, verse 49, when Jesus knows in advance what Nathaniel is like, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. He immediately, he immediately professes Christ. And he, again, you say, well, is that because all of his questions were answered? Say, no, what changed that he had an encounter, a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus? And I think if you talk to Christians, you say, this is what's happened to them. Say, do I still have questions? Yes, I sure do, and doubts, and my own sin, yes, but I've had a perfect, uh, a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus. That Jesus makes an impression upon Nathaniel. And this is where our hope is. So think back to that colleague. You know, here you are, you're feeling a lot of pressure to maybe you know, deliver the sentence in just the right way, and you say, I just want, want them to come to Christ, and I have to, I have to just uh, land, land this perfectly. You say, is that really it? Or to say, no, I want to share about what Jesus has done for me. 
trusting that it's a work of God to penetrate the heart, that I'm just the vehicle, I'm being obedient to what God has asked me to do. I've done it naturally through a relational network when the opportunities come up, and God in his, in his power is going to change the heart. And you know, friends, when we do this, we are not always good at sharing the good news of Jesus. But when we do this and people are converted, it then is a testament to God's power, isn't it? Maybe you know some people, right? You think, well, that person's never going to become a Christian. They're so anti-Christian, I I don't uh, know how. It would have to be a miracle for them to follow Jesus. You say, that's right. And lo and behold, God in his power, in his spirit, can make the heart tender. And to have this personal encounter with Jesus, as Nathaniel does here, and you say, yeah, there are even greater things. There are even greater things to see in Jesus, the one who's our mediator. Friends, key point today. Christ followers are to share the good news of Jesus. So what do we think about 2021? Are we going to do this? Many of us who say, I've been a Christian for 20 years, 30 years, and we've never said the name of Jesus to anyone who doesn't already believe in him. So is that what we see the Bible telling us? And Christ telling us? Or do we say, you know what, I need to, I need to make some changes here. That I really need to get to Jesus, that name, with those who don't know him. A few very practical things. You know, I've been in the habit of writing down the names of non-believing friends and family in my Bible. So right in the very front, if, I know we have physical Bibles at Providence. You open up your Bible and the, one of those blank sheets, just begin to make an, a list of those in your network, be it a work network or a social network or even in your family. Say they don't know Jesus. Write those names down on the inside of your Bible. Begin to pray. Pray that God would soften their heart and pray that you would have the opportunity to share uh, the good news of Jesus. Another thing, very practically, so you know we're bringing on Christianity Explored here, that uh, Randy Nickel, one of our elders, and a few others have been through the training. But what Christianity Explored is, is just an introductory course to what it means to be a Christian. So again, this very kind of low confrontation, right? You might have a friend or a neighbor who says, you know, I don't, I don't know what to make of this uh, Christ, you know, Christian stuff. You say, well, what about coming to a Christianity Explored course? It runs for seven weeks or so at church. It's a video and a discussion. You can think about that. That would be a wonderful thing to think about and pray about for 2021. Lastly, um, will you read a book in 2021 that will help you get here. I've got, again, a number of classics and some new ones. Some, uh, You know, I have something like um, um, J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God or Rebecca McLaughlin's Confronting Christianity where she takes on 12 common objections to the faith. You say, I can get through one of those couple hundred page books this year and I really want to work at this. I want to be able to have something to say about what Jesus has done and those who ask me about it. Maybe you could even read a gospel with a friend, right? Say, well, why don't we go through the Gospel of John and just meet regularly and see what the claims of Christ are. So brothers and sisters, far from being a, a bad time to engage in evangelism, say, I think that this year is going to be a wonderful year to engage in evangelism. There are a lot of questions. So again, what would this passage have us think about? That this is going to be best accomplished through our relational networks. That evangelism requires a changed heart rather than a technical theological education. Are we passionate about Jesus? 
Evangelism does demand that we know a bit about our times. And while we don't need to answer every question, we need to allow people like John the Baptist, behold Jesus, come and see Jesus. Can we get folks there? And lastly and reassuringly, evangelism is the work of God's spirit. The pressure is not on us. God does the work. We are to be faithful and obedient. May many be one, we pray, through uh, the lives of those who are Christians at Providence Church. I'll pray and invite Ian up. Lord, from the very beginning, you said that we're to go to all the nations and tell others about you to make them learners and followers. Lord, we confess we've done a very poor job of this in the American church, that we've assumed people know about you or that we just can't, uh, that we're embarrassed to tell uh, others about you or that we're just too lazy or we think it's the job of the church or the professional the professionals and and lord whatever would be help us to see that every christian when genuinely changed by christ that we can tell others about you that it's an announcement of good news we should be no more nervous to tell people about what you've done in our life than we would be about the great news of the christmas initiative or whatever other good news we could think of maybe a new baby or something help us to see that Help us not to create narratives in our head where we think others are going to dislike us uh, when that doesn't seem to be the case, but rather help us to be faithful and loving and in our networks to, yes, do our jobs with excellence, to deal with kindness and integrity and to listen to those questions that people have and to be able to speak about why you've made a difference in our life. And Lord, we know that you ultimately are the one who touches the human heart and draws it to you and may we rest in that truth help us to get better at this help us to make great strides in the year to come may christ be lifted high amen You're the God of this city, you're the King of these people, you're the Lord of this nation, you are, you're the light in this darkness, you're the hope to the hopeless, you're the peace to the restless, you are the is no one like our God there is no one like our God greater things are yet to come greater things still to be done in this city to call greater things still to be done here you're the lord of creation the creator of all things you're the king above all kings you are you're the strength in the weakness you're the love to the broken you're the joy in the sadness 
you are There is no one like our God There is no one like you, God Greater things have yet to come Greater things still to be done in this city Where glory shines from hearts to life With praise for you and love for you in this city Greater things are yet to come Greater things still to be done in this city Greater things are yet to come Still to be done here. Oh. There is no one like you, God. There is no one like you, God. Facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees, a need that undiminished rebukes us lawful ease. We who rejoice to know thee, renew before that throne. The solemn pledge we owe thee To go and make thee known Where are the lords beside thee Hold their unhindered sway Where forces that defy thee Defy thee still today with none to heed their crying for life and love and life unnumbered souls are dying and pass into the night we go to all the world this kingdom hope unfurl no other name is power to save than jesus christ the Lord, you are the Lord. We bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their lives, proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. Ours is the same commission, the same glad message, ours. Fired by the same ambition, to Thee we yield our powers. 
we go to all the world his kingdom open for no other name is power to stay but jesus christ the lord oh father who sustain them oh spirit who inspire savior whose love constrain them to toil with zeal untired from cowardice defend us from lethargy awake for on thine errand send us to labor for thy sake we go to all the world with kingdom open firm no other name is power to save but jesus christ the lord we go to all the world with kingdom open furl no other name is power to save but jesus christ the last song says it all that we go to all the world and may god strengthen us there is no place for slothful ease for everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching and how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. May 2021 be a year where we tell others about Jesus and see his power as he changes hearts. Church family, I look forward to seeing you next week as we start the Philippians series. In the meantime, may God's peace be with you. May you enjoy the end of this year and into the new year. Amen.